Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. They've got this mansion there that's you know been rocketed and bombed out the whole village is like pretty much rubble yeah and uh security is pretty loose up there that's where they're going to be like dealing with a lot of the um isis conflicts and i'm like yeah sure like i'm not scared of, i <laughs> yeah. don't mind a bit of risk here. sure yeah. what if the writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens where people don't change more reflection of the real world nothing happens in the world Welcome to A Theory of Mind, a podcast about brains, minds, and the lived-in experience of change. I'm your host, author and biographer Ben McKelvey, and before we get into this week's Anzac Day guest, I just wanted to say that the show and I are taking a little break, so I can do a little work on a new book that I've started. Uh, I'm not sure how long this uh, break will be. It may be a few weeks. It may be a few months. Um, But I just wanted you to know that the show will be coming back with new guests and maybe even a new format. So we'll see. Anyway, to this week's guest, Sweebs. That's it, Sweebs. He just wanted to be identified as Sweebs. Uh, Sweebs is a military veteran who was part of the Australian Special Forces uh, conducting tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. While there's a lot of conversation these days about Afghanistan, uh, Sweebs and I primarily talk about Iraq and specifically we talk about the Battle of Mosul, which was an epic undertaking that I wrote a book about last year. Sweebs wasn't a source in the book and he wasn't even really someone I'd met before. So everything that we get into, we get into cold. It took a little while to warm up this conversation, but once we get going, I found it so fascinating. He's such an interesting bloke and he's got a great story. Anyway, I appreciate you taking some time to listen to Sweebs and I. If you're listening to this uh, on Anzac Day, I hope you're commemorating and remembering in the way that you see fit. And now, Sweebs. So yeah, we've only met once before, so... um if you can give us a little potted history of yourself, of, um, of Mick, as we're calling you, uh, that'd be great. And how you got to the military. Uh, yeah, g'day, Ben. Um, so I was a bit, bit about myself. I was uh, born in New Zealand, a uh, little town just above uh, Auckland, um, and lived there. I did primary school there, came over to uh, Brizzy and, um, and, and continued school until I was 19, and then ha- actually wasn't a very like academic sort of person. Hmm. My my grades were very average. Um, I, th- I think that was a lot of due to like structure and kind of direction, uh, like a lot of people. Um, and then decided that a life of adventure really suited me, and uh, like joined the army at the time was like a good option. Afghan. Was, was there anyone in your family that had been in the military? Actually, yeah, uh, my granddad. <coughs> My granddad was in uh, in the military, and he went over to. He was part of like well, um, he joined uh, the Australian Army. Oh yeah. Even though I'm from New Zealand, we kind of like chased back the roots back to Australia. But my granddad was in the Australian Army, fought in World War One, um, and also th- he's actually in a book um, himself. 
kind of detailing one of the battles that he was in. Yeah. End of the day, he got he was shot in the head um, after trying to save a couple of his friends. Um, and after getting shot shot in the head, he was still able to get up and carry one of the guys that he was fighting beside uh, back to the uh, back to the fort and got sent back to Australia because of his injuries. But yeah, he. He did something pretty like brave and heroic, in my, in my opinion. Was this something that was sticking in your head as a kid? Uh, this is this is a, a, a point of adventure. You know, you're sort of slugging through school. Things are a bit of a chore, but you're like, you know, there is this possibility. Yeah, subconsciously there was something like that I felt like I could live up to. Um, and you had a relationship with him. Good relationship. No, I've never oh, met him at all. No, nope. uh, it was just my dad that kind of described who he was and. Um, obviously stories and, and tales like that generate a fair bit of pride and, and respect. Yeah. And then you joined the military, which was the unit that you went to initially? Um, so after I, uh, joined the army and did Kapuka, I went up to Townsville, um, served at 3CR for about seven to eight years, um, where I, yeah, made a lot of like some of my closest friends up there because, um, we were all at a young age when we first joined the uh, when we first joined the military, mm. and we, that was the biggest thing that we had in common. Um, leaving leaving home for the first time for everyone, and also not having any other relationships in an f- unfamiliar place, kind of like brings everyone pretty close together. And you have to lean on each other, I guess, as well, because yeah. you got you know people yelling at you and tasks that you got to do that you don't necessarily know how to do. Yeah, exactly. It was a massive culture shock, and yeah. we all kind of we were in, all in the same sinking boat together, I guess, and. Had to pull together to kind of make things work. Um, now, what what year was that? Uh, two thousand four. Two thousand four. So, um, the deployments to Afghanistan. There had been deployments to Afghanistan, but but not to the scale of, as as to what it was going to be in two thousand five, two thousand six. So, do you remember when it became apparent to you that you were probably gonna gonna get a run? Probably not until about two thousand and seven. So. Um, no one really knew what Afghanistan was going to look like um, in around 2004. It did progressively get busier and busier. There were like some jobs that, uh, some deployments that kept stepping up for the engineers who had trades under their belt, working mm. with SOTG, building um, the SO compounds. And as we all know, it grew uh, bigger and bigger. And then by about 2008, we're all getting told, all the engineers were getting told it's going to be a busy like next decade for us. Yeah. Now, how did how did your training change when you knew that you were actually going to be out there sort of applying your skills into the field? Um, just to give a bit of background, you were going to be doing bomb disposal? Um, not initially. What was the job going to be? So initially it was search. So we were um, the guys doing the high-risk search um, of the like explosives, whether they were cached or whether they were like already implanted to, um, to detonate. And to be honest, that was like, I don't know how people justify that. That was like a a worthwhile task. It was really dangerous for a lot of guys. Um, and I don't know how often I would just see like close calls, shake my head and just go, this is a, this is a crazy job to be doing and continue to wanting to do it. Yeah. Some of the guys out there got some pretty big balls and, and, um, at the moment, like they're still the, they're still the same guys. They haven't sort of changed since those, since those encounters. And, and I wish, yeah, I wish those guys all the best. Yeah. 
So tell me a little bit about your, you did two tours of Afghanistan. Tell me about your experiences with, uh, you did both of them with the mentoring task force, is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, right. so tell me about what that was like. Um, so Afghanistan was relatively quiet um, up until like the, the first MTF. There was, you, you, it was dangerous, don't get me wrong, um, but it was starting to develop and kind of adopt into a bit more of a fighting um, sort of fighting environment. Um, a lot more IEDs were getting found. Um, a lot more close calls were happening. And, um, if, you know, a few guys started to get severely injured. Mm. Just just to give a little bit of background. <clears throat> so the, uh, the mentoring task force... Uh, those were Australian soldiers who were sent over there to upskill the Afghan military. Um, and the idea was that they were going to eventually take over the work that the Australians were doing. It wasn't really Australian infantrymen. It was more special forces operators that were, that were doing that offensive work in Uruzgan. Um, and so what would exactly be your role with the mentoring task force? What were the engineers doing? Yeah, correct. So essentially we all wanted to train ourselves out of our jobs. Mm. We didn't want to be there for the next 10 years because it was the country didn't belong to us. Uh, we just wanted everyone to be able to um, defend themselves and that's what we wanted to train the guys to be able to do eventually. Um, and that's what we began doing. However, um, to be able to do that, it involved us um, fighting beside... Um, the Afghani army. Mm. Um, there was a lot of massive cultural differences, um, a lot of challenges in that regard, not just like language barrier, but also sort of like morals. Mm. Um, and that's probably a lot of uh, where a lot of friction comes from, from the guys that are maybe struggling over uh, once, once they got back as well, is how a lot of like the, the cultural differences between the Afghan National Army and, and the Australian um, forces... Um, however, just like everywhere, there were some really great dudes, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the Afghani army and also some terrible ones. Um, the, the moral differences that you were talking about, um, it, it must've been, you know, we won't sort of get into what those things are, but, um, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of well known what, what those things are. Um, but going into a place where they are in their country then you almost have to take on their moral standard. You can't take on their moral standard, but you have to accept that moral standard of them. So that must have been really difficult for everybody. Yeah. Um, I don't have the tools to deal with that. I don't know how I have dealt with it. Um, no one, we've kind of just moved on. Um, it wasn't really discussed or, you know, or approached at all. Yeah. Um, and you either dealt with it or you struggled. And, yeah. and I know that people are still struggling. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I got no advice on, on what I did and or what, how, how what I did would help other people. Yeah. Now, after you did your two Afghan tours, um, you uh, became part of a unit that was called SOA. Was it called, was it the Incident Response Regiment then or was it SOA? No, that just changed a couple of years before I got that. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, Incident Response Regiment and then uh, changed over to Special Operation Engineer Regiment um, while I was there. Now, now that's a regiment that's part of the of the Special Forces Group of Australia's Special Operations Command. Um, it's probably the regiment that's least best that that's least best understood 
of the special forces units that, that Australia has, but it's also one of the best respected uh, here in Australia and overseas. It's a capability that, you know, Americans and Brits always talk about SOA and, and sort of how good they are. Um, so can you just give us a quick rundown of how you ended up part of SOA, what the selection process is, and then a little bit about SOA itself? Um, well, I feel what I wanted to achieve when I first joined the Army was what SOA was doing. Um, I've always been quite risk-accepting and once I got good at my job within the regular army, I wanted to probably challenge myself a bit more and accept a lot more risk and do things that I found a lot more exciting and more adventurous. Was, was part of it because you'd been to Afghanistan, you'd seen the guys do it? Yeah, yeah. But also at that time, Afghanistan was winding down. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't... Um, particularly interested in uh, promotion, but I was really interested in skill development. Mm. And that's a big thing that like, SOA was able to provide. And while I was, after getting down to SOA um, and going through their barrier tests and their selections and then their um, reinforcement, like specialty courses, um, you know, I, f- I felt like an incredibly like, better soldier, um, more mature, um, more like emotionally intelligent. I felt like a, a better leader without doing the promotion courses. What 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 is their barrier test? Is it similar to the two CDO barrier test? Um, no, I, I would say like the the fitness. There's a fitness barrier. However, the overarching, I suppose, selection management still goes down to the army mm. uh, as a whole rather than the individual unit. Um, so, guys, that when I went down there. Um, guys that went through the barrier test would get um, prioritised and then depending on their career path may or may not go down rather than having the choice to go down like solely between the individual and between the unit. Yeah, right. Um, and so when you, would, when, you were, um, when you finished your reinforcement cycle, um, you were sort of in a unique position because Afghanistan was winding down um, what was the thing that was on the horizon? What was the deployment that you saw in your mind? What did you think you were going to be doing? So ISIS was fairly formidable at that stage. Um, and again, we, like nobody thought that ISIS was going to go, anyway, uh, go anywhere anytime soon. Um, but still the p- deployments weren't really like clear about what sort of fighting that we were going to or how we were going to be operating in that environment. So you thought it was a possibility that after Afghanistan you're like oh this might actually be the next thing that we do. Yeah correct yeah like we could have been fighting there for for 10 years Mm. just like in Afghanistan. Um, However when I eventually deployed there in 2016 just after uh, my reinforcement cycle um so it was just afterwards? Yeah. So literally went, did reinforcement cycle, um, went to, worked in Perth for a little while, yeah. um, went to the Philippines for a month, came back um, to Sydney and then within a couple of weeks doing cultural and pre-deployment training and then into Iraq. Now, how did this happen? I mean, you know, this is a plum job for somebody who's in Seoul. We're going to talk a little bit about what the work was that you were actually doing. But as a newbie... I was frothing pretty hard, to be honest. Oh, I can imagine. How did they? So, how did it end up being you? Um, I don't know. A little bit of luck, a little bit of like reputation. Yeah. Um, Steady hand. You'd had a couple of Afghan deployments. Yeah, like 
like not saying that like there was a few other guys that could have done it just the same as me, um, but then they were probably like needed. They had other skill sets that were like more important in Baghdad where I was able to just operate by myself with the uh, two commando guys and um, as the only uh, engineer on the ground. Yeah, right. So so give us a blow-by-blow. Blow. So what we're going to be talking about was the Battle of Mosul, which ended up being pretty much the most significant urban, urban battle since Vietnam. It was an epic, epic battle, um, which I wrote a book about um, called Mosul, Australia's Secret War Inside the ISIS Caliphate. Um, so can you just give us a blow-by-blow blow from when you were sort of chosen for that job and how you ended up in Bartella, which is the place where Australian, the Australians were? Well, originally I was, I was asked, like, do you want to go to Baghdad? Do you want to stay in Baghdad or do you want to go to Mosul? I had no idea what was happening in Mosul. Yeah, right. Uh, so what was the job what in Baghdad? What were you going to be doing there? Um, so that was a mentoring force. Yeah, right. Up so, at Taji? Yeah, yeah. So guys... Oh yeah, um, no, no, not Taji. Sorry, in uh, Baghdad. Right, um, and it was like heavily instructional. You know, you teach guys counter IED techniques, and you know, um, dealing with IEDs, but also like a bit of search here and there. Yeah, um, which you know, which is cool. But after the, uh, I was told about the option in Mosul. I was like, well, what's happening in Mosul? <laughs> you didn't know that the city was completely occupied by ISIS. I had, I had no idea at that stage because <laughs> I've been in Philippines the yeah. last months, right? Um, and, yeah, my, uh, my boss was like, oh, you know, the, at the moment they've got, this, um, they've got this mansion there that's, you know, been rocketed and bombed out. The whole village is like pretty much rubble. Yeah. And uh, the security is pretty loose up there. But um, that's where they're going to be, like, dealing with a lot of the um, ISIS conflicts. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, I'm not scared. I <laughs> don't mind a bit of risk here and there. Yeah. Um, so and that was it. That was pretty much the conversation. So let, let's just um, figure out where you were. Um, so the house in Bartella had been seized and then there was a strike cell that was set up I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks afterwards, maybe a little bit little bit after that. Did you come shortly after that or did you come pretty much straight away as the, after the house was seized? No, so the boys before us, so the uh, the t- deployment that we were handed, uh, oh, yeah, handed right. over to us, they adopted and they they um, got into Mosul before us. Yeah. They um, they inherited the uh, the Bartala sort of like suburb, yeah. um, did a lot of cleaning up themselves, established like security and sort of like some sort of game plan uh, for the future and set the scene for our deployment where we were able to like, yeah, crush the ISIS. So tell me about uh, your experiences. Presumably you flew into um, Obil? Yes. And then you overlanded from Obil to Mosul? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your drive from Obil to Mosul, just watching it go from, you know, a a relatively normal-looking place to just Hades? Yeah, so... It felt really sketchy um, being a new guy um, and, you know, hanging out with a whole lot of dudes that had some really intense uh, Afghan experience. I was just under the presumption that this was a regular sort of like deal and uh, environment. Um, after talking to a few of the guys, it was – everyone felt it was sketchy. We got to Erbil – sorted out our own like personal stores and then did some sketchy handover, met some other like random people and it was just this whole logistical thing that set, that felt um, 
impromptu and and improvised improvised yeah and it was cool like <laughs> it was i was like i found it exciting yeah it's real special forces stuff right and then we got into this bus that was like super dodgy um like shitty curtains bells and just like all these weird things hanging up on the windows and just jingling around yeah it's a civilian bus yeah wrecked wrecked like suspension and there was probably about six of us um believe we weren't like wearing anything like military at that stage we just had our you know had our guns on us and we had no real like um concept about where we were driving or what we were like getting into was this uh were these americans who were looking after you then or um not at that stage we i think we had a local contractor that was driving us yeah so we i don't even think we had like comms at that stage but like we i think we had like maybe a couple of shady mobile phones with shady reception yeah. but we were driving along dirt roads um somewhere yeah. and we just had to have faith that the guy that was driving this local contractor that was, was driving gonna take you where you should was gonna like hold going. up his end of the deal <laughs> and after about an hour we ended up meeting up with some um some american guys that we, we didn't know either but yeah we kind of knew that things were ticking over properly yeah and then presumably they had um uh, you know an apc or a tank or whatever it was and then drove you into into bartella correct yeah was it was it when you got to bartella that you got a sense of just what was going on and how the scope of the how big the scope of the battle was yeah it was like very interesting like it was like surreal um you know all the photos that you see um, about just demolished suburb upon suburb upon suburb kind of just and it was actually like a little bit um it was just like a little bit I don't know disappointing eerie yeah eerie but kind of like disappointing that a whole civilization just could be like wiped out within yeah. a few months right um but you know that's war I guess well did it uh, motivate you because you know the the job was basically to eradicate ISIS. This this was the territorial battle against ISIS. There was a fight in, in Raqqa later on, but Mosul was really where it happened. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think with all the plans or even just the structure of how we were going to operate there was still um, kind of being ironed out. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, it just evolved into this thing where we – and I beat ISIS towards the end of the, uh, the six-month deployment. Um, I'm not sure if that was the plan from the start. Um, I know that we weren't meant to be like engaging with any ISIS ourselves, but we're trying to have the biggest effect just back from the uh, from the front line as possible. Now, tell me a little bit about your role, because um, my understanding of what was happening in Bartella is that uh, the two CDO guys forward projected into this house, and they basically were cordoning the area with this Iraqi CTS, the Counterterrorism Service, and there was a Navy SEAL element there as well. Um, and they had set up a strike cell. So the strike cell was basically, um, you know, it was almost like a, a conductor in the orchestra where all the planes that were coming in, the drones and things like that. So, that you know, there was this, there was this sort of real momentum to try and keep these strikes going so the CTS could project into the city and, and sort of defeat ISIS. But as a SOAR operator, what was your role there? Uh, within the strike cell or yeah. within Mosul? Within the strike cell and within Bartella. Uh, to be honest, I didn't have much of like a, a job within the strike cell. Um, that was all mainly for the uh, JTAC guys. However, I was able to um, sort of like provide advice on IED laying TTPs or, sorry, like tactics and kind of identify yeah. 
Uh, when the CTS found something. Yeah, or even when we had surveillance on an IED being laid at the time by ISIS. Yep. I was able to provide that... Um, that informational that, that expert, piece. That expert opinion and, yeah. and kind of explain why I thought that um, and why I thought that in the middle of the road that they were digging in a, a pressure plate and why there was going to be um, other explosives in in other walls and... And whatever whatever played on for the next two minutes, um, and then that way, and then they were able to use on occasions that information as as like a targeting yeah. response. The, the the initial role for for the I incident response regiment, or one of the initial roles, then you know this ended up becoming the task for SOAR as well, was counter chemical, biological, and nuclear um, threat. And two of those things were encountered in Mosul. Did you have any interaction with the nuclear threat and the chemical threat uh, that that ISIS posed to to the soldiers there. Well, this was supposed to be my primary my primary um, skill set that I was able to provide uh, the guys in Mosul. Uh, the the chem bio stuff um, was my bag where I could um, at least provide some sort of mitigation against that threat against that threat uh, t- um, towards the um, towards our team. Had had there already been a chemical attack? Um, not to my knowledge. There was definitely like a lot of intelligence that they had the um, one the, the knowledge to like the the materials and three the intent mm. so it was kind of just an appending sort of uh, expectation yeah and eventually it was and eventually it did happen yeah um, but yeah my primary task up there was to provide decon but also advice on whether decon being decontamination yeah so if there was an attack um, we could relatively um, sort of clean everyone up and provide like some good first aid as quickly as possible. So tell me about what happened when, when the chemical attack did come. It wasn't, you know, the, the trenches of World War I, but, um, but it was a chemical attack. So we're always concerned about this, um, the chemical uh, mustard. Um, we knew that they were manufacturing a lot of the stuff. Um, however, the purity was never really fantastic. And when they when there were sort of um, attacks, a lot of the, the mustard compound itself was um, being degraded by either the explosion or even just like going off hmm. um, uh, just due to like whatever exposure, like the oxygen exposure. Um, so that was kind of like a relief that they weren't able to manufacture military-grade mustard. How eventually, like, it, there was an attack um, towards maybe like the third, fourth month of my deployment, um, and it was actually like a real surprise. We were, we were anticipating it, but we didn't want to cause mass hysteria, like, mass hysteria, and provide sort of information that was going to um, excite ISIS, right, or even kick up a whole lot of other like pending mitigations like everyone adopting having to wear masks mask suits and stuff yeah, yeah. masks yeah. When, when it wasn't necessary so it was quite a deliberate sort of assessment it was about like 10 uh 10 p.m. when we did get start uh we got a few casualties that were uh presenting with the signs and symptoms of mustard um they had redness of the eyes they had sore throats they complained about all the stories and the encounters that they had with a black liquid um, falling them on, like on their clothes and like exploding near them 
was you know consistent with with what a mustard attack would look like. However, that's that was about the twelfth hour, and no one was really like um, showing signs of blisters. Yeah, what you'd you know see in you know the the photos from Vietnam. Hmm. Um, so after kind of expecting worst case, went through this whole decon. Um, made sure that everyone was, like, washed down thoroughly um, and, and provided new clothes and got them through to the, um, to the medical uh, emergency clinic um, where they were, like, monitored for the next, like, 12 hours and within another, like, further 12 hours, um, they, they were the guys that had itchy eyes and, like, and burning skin um, were complaining, yeah, like, presented with... With, with blisters. Uh, with blisters all over them. The unusual thing about that was everyone that did that had exposure to the mustard their the most painful thing thing for them were their uh, was the burning of their eyes and yeah. the and the burning of their throats mm. the like the blisters weren't presenting like giving them any pain at all yeah really interesting it was interesting ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I can imagine that, uh, you know, when there's an attack like this and, you know, this was at the point where um, ISIS had been encircled and, you know, there'd been this sort of, you know, constriction. So, you know, they were, um, they were in a position where it looked like they were, they were going to lose this, this battle. Um, so that sounds like desperation. And I can imagine for, for you guys and for the planners that that would have said to them, you know, we have to finish this thing because otherwise they're going to get more desperate and they might actually figure this out. Well, um, what actually happened was the um, was it the, the Battle of Old Mosul. Mm. Um, you've you've yeah. you heard that story. So that, that ended up being like a massive siege, like hundreds of people um, basically kidnapped and and um, made hostage within Old Mosul, which is a uh, highly built up um, CBD. Uh, we alleyways won't even provide access for vehicles, like. For kilometres. Yeah. And that was the, like their last strike. It was their, that was their last sort of um, act of desperation that they had on the board until, yeah, until we were able to, and the CTS were able to go through and, and um, systematically go through each building. Yeah. And, you know, it was a mess for those guys, as, as you can imagine. And, um, but it was, it was necessary. Like it was the only thing that you could do short of, locking everyone down and people starving to death. Yeah. And, you know, finally they destroyed the Al Nuri Mosque, which is, you know, a great place of antiquity and it was also the place where uh, where al-Baghdadi, um, uh, where he nominated the Islamic State as, as, a, as a caliphate. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, we, we sort of spoke a little bit about um, the, the possibility of there had been, of, of there being a radiological weapon. Um, if you can talk about it, 
be great if you could. I don't know whether whether that was within your remit. I don't know whether that was when you when you were there. Um, but that was the, the that was why it was so important to capture Mosul University. Were you were you part of any of that? Um, yeah. Oh, to be actually, I, I've like I don't know what I can say about that. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. If. If if you feel like maybe uncertain. you can't talk about it, we won't yeah. we won't talk about it. Hey, you can read about it in my book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Well, let, let's let's talk a little bit about the other things that you did. Um, one of the things that I that I heard about that a couple of people told me about um, was next door to the house in Bartella, and this might have happened before you got there. Um, there was a field next door, and the the field had been cleared, or it was a you know a clearing space, and that's where guys were, were doing their ablutions. Um, but somebody did step on an IED. Um, it was supposedly a bag that had already sort of started to wilt into the um, into the soil, so the explosion wasn't that bad. But were you there when that happened? Yeah. So that that wasn't in Bartala. That was on like the other side of the of the um, the Tigris. Right. And um, that yeah. So uh, there was a lack of inf- uh, lack of intel with this whole area. Um, as as the whole Mosul battle evolved, we moved from one side of the river um, about halfway throughout the deployment onto the other side of the river. And where we ended up on the second so- on the on the other side of the river was another massive like mansion compound, um, which was that T A Wyvern. Yeah. Yep. Um, which there was no previous history on, but as we kind of like. Um, continued to live there. More questions got asked, and it turned out that it belonged to a, an executioner. Yeah, right. Um, and as we talked to more and more people throughout throughout the deployment, more information came through, and this um, this sort of compound was being used by ISIS and an executioner, um, and was like actually heavily guarded. Right. Some of the guard, like some of the, the tools that we're using to guard this compound, were like IEDs around the fence line. Um, these particular IEDs um, were running like perpendicular for about twenty meters, um, perpendicular to the compound wall, mm. um, and we like nobody had any idea that they were there, including myself. Um, and the way we did find them, or the way we did eventually come across them, was that when we were building a car park outside of the compound, um, a bulldozer drove over and initiated um, an explosive. Um, gratefully, like it, it deflagrated, which means um, it partially exploded. Yeah. Um, and that was due to like just weathering of, an, of the, uh, the homemade explosives. But um, that obviously triggered some, some, more, some more searching of the area. And we ended up finding like six other IEDs yeah. um, lit along the, lit along that um, that wall. So did you bring in? Did they bring in a team to to support you, or did you have to do this individually with guys that you had upskilled? Yeah. So I, I found this um, uh, one indication of of some explosive and sort of sought like um, assistance from uh, one of the seal doggies. Um, so the seal doggy was able to cast his dog over the. Um, the explosive and, and give a secondary like sort of um, indication that there was something like there was some explosive there. Yeah. And then um, one of the COEOD team guys um, went over and 
had a search himself and ended up pulling out like this uh, 155, which is a massive like um, sort of like bomb that gets shot out of the cannon. Mm. Um, you were talking about the SEAL doggy and the SEAL EOD. Um, there was a, an Australian Special Forces element um, and then there was also a US Navy SEAL element. Um, did you have much interaction with those guys? Yeah, we were living um, side by side. Um, we had our tents and they had their tents, but they were basically like just across the, across the like the path. Um, Did you do much work with them? No, like our relation, like we had separate sort of um, teams that we were mentoring. So we had the CTS and they had another team. I can't remember. Or maybe they had just another um, element of CTS. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but our two forces didn't work side by side. Right. Um, you did say earlier, and if you can't talk about this, that's fine, and you know I can cut it out as well. That you you worked a little bit with the French. Um, can you tell us a little bit how that, a little bit about how that happens? How how an Australian in the Battle of Mosul ends up working with the French? Yeah, so that was I actually I actually had a good relationship with the French. Um, there's a, there's a massive history between the Americans and the French not getting along. Yeah, um, but personally, I was able to um, you know extend my hand out and. And kind of offer them help with. How um, did that happen though? Did they did they turn up to the house and or to to Wyvern and say you know hey we're doing some work we we need some help? No, I just basically said sup like how you doing? Yeah. And one of them uh, had a one one of them could speak poor English. Where was this? Where did you meet this guy? In Bartella. Yeah, it was in Bartella. Yeah. yeah. So they already had a house set up. Yeah. Um, down the road from us, um, and I was happy to be able to sort of like extend my skill set to to another country um i didn't realize how sort of how much friction there was between america and france yeah um it was an interesting dynamic and i and towards the end i was like when they needed help uh or they were they wanted to ask for a capability um the americans were like less reluctant to to help them than they were at the start yeah the 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 french were were doing something that was a little bit different to what everybody else was doing um there were a lot of there was a lot of coalition support for the Iraqis who were clearing the city, um, and that's what the Five Eyes guys were doing. That's what you know the Brits, the Australians, the Americans were doing, mm. and that was the Australian mission. So, the point of the of the gunfighters, the Australian gunfighters, there were not to get in gunfights um, and and not to have any casualties. But the French were on a slightly different mission. Can you talk a little bit about that or? Um. Yeah, well, like we're we're familiar with um, what's that comic called? Um, Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, so we're all familiar that there was like a, a big um, sort of ISIS radicalization problem within France, mm. um, and France sort of decided to clear that up themselves, and they had a lot of individuals that they um, that they were identifying and and surveilling from France. And then uh, chasing overseas to to Iraq and and Syria. So their job was basically to during the Battle of Mosul find French jihadis who eventually could matriculate back to France and you know commit another atrocity. And they had these French special forces teams just to make sure that that was never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, were, they had very like autonomous sort of tactics and strategies, um, and it's. I'm a little bit jealous that they, they had that sort of like freedom on the battlefield. Yeah. Um, but everything that they did was, you know, like above board and and um, and still like achieving a lot for the, for their own 
uh, for their own government. Um, just unfortunate that they weren't a part of the like the great the, strategy, the, the official war against ISIS. Yeah, the Battle of Mosul finishes, and it was it was a success. It, it was you know there there were elements of that battle that probably could it'd be it'd be preferable if it didn't go that way you know there was a lot of places that was destroyed you know that's just the way that isis chose to fight there were a lot of civilians killed as well which is also the way that isis chose to fight um but you must have got a sense of satisfaction knowing that the job was actually done that was a job that had to be done oh massively I, like it was hard to imagine that it was done it had been like ma- I, like isis had a massive foothold in Iraq and Syria for the last, the last five years. Mm. And then within a six-month deployment, it was like just disappeared. Yeah. Um, obviously, awesome results. Um, but, yeah, hard to believe. Like coming from Afghanistan, it was a slow, like meticulous like battle. Like every six months, it was you weren't sure that it was going to end. And still, it's you know, there's, there's things happening in Afghanistan still. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, within six months... We were confident that we broke ISIS's back and then that was just continued to be confirmed over like the next six to 12 months. Personally though, like you were saying that, you know, you were frothing when you got this opportunity to go to Mosul. When you came back to Australia, you must have recognised that this was going to be a career peak for you and that must have presented its own set of issues. It was. So, well, I came back, I had a month off, um, went on holidays for a month, kind of like rested and then... Within two weeks, I was back over there for another six weeks. Oh, right. What was yeah. that? So that was kind of like my, that confirmation that ISIS had really withdrawn. So I think that was like the end of um, – that was the end or the of the Battle of um, Old Mosul. Right. So that was still kind of like happening and continuing continuing on while we, while we, while we pulled out. And after my holiday, it was good to like kind of go back there. Just make sure – yeah, like us, like kind of like reconnect with sort of um, relationships with other French um, forces that I met over there, other uh, CTS and Iraqi army guys and also like other Americans that were still there. And within – I was only there for another six weeks. However, within a month of being there, it was definitely like a completely different war to what I was there, mm. to when I was there. Because there was an element of Australians who went on to the Battle of Talafar, is that right? Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know too much about that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the thing that I'm getting at, though, is that, um, you know, there's something that you've been training for for your entire life and you basically get what you want and now you come back and, you know, as, uh, as an identity, as, as somebody who, who sees himself as, uh, you know, an EOD and a bomb tech and all that sort of stuff, you've, you've reached the zenith, you've gone to the Olympics. And so there must have been a bit of a letdown afterwards. Um, no, I, well, I knew that was like a peak, but I feel like I was, I was in the army for 16 years and every like few years there was another peak. Yeah. Um, so I was hopeful there was going to be another peak post of that. <laughs> Um, who knows, like, again, we couldn't be sure that that was going to be definitely the end of, of, um, ISIS. There was always going to be new tasks and new exciting things around the corner with, you know, the environment that we were working in. Um, but I just, I definitely did not feel like 
that was the it. best of me was like was finished. So um, you're transitioning out of the army now, or you you have left the army. Tell us a little bit about your decision making and why and when you decided to leave the army. Um, mate, like, f- like I only I didn't do too long um, within the the special operations uh, community. I only did about four or five years. But towards that end of four or five years, I was cooked. Like, I was, I was like generally unwell. Um, I was. Um, Were you? Was it? Did you feel like you were mentally unwell or physically unwell with the tempo? I was. Well, I was. I was mentally unwell, not, not to the point of, you know, like self harm. Yeah. But I knew that my health, my my general health was was degrading because I stopped enjoying PT. Um, I wasn't looking after my nutrition. Um, I didn't feel happy. Uh, relationships were like, were exhausting. Mm. Um, and so then I just knew that this wasn't a life that needed, like this wasn't a job that needed to be continued if, if it was going to, you know, make me feel unwell or if the aim of like my life is just to, just to be happy, like I should, this I should isn't it. pick something new, yeah. So tell me about why you think you started to feel like that. Um, fatigue, definitely. Uh, fatigue and isolation. Um, I don't know whether isolation, like isolation was something that I chose or whether it was just a lifestyle of, of Sydney. Mm. Um, but regardless, um, I would go home in the afternoons and just feel like terrible like by myself in this big house that I had um, and there was no reason to, for me like looking at, a, at my own life, I felt like there was no reason why I should be like feeling bad about it mm. because I felt like I had everything. Um, it was just a – I can't even put my finger on it. It was just a dissatisfaction with probably the di- direction that it was going. Do you think maybe you felt in isolation because you were, you know – within this sort of secretive part of the military that it sort of it had been drilled into you not to talk about the things that you were doing, not to share widely um, what was happening to you? I think it was a military lifestyle, being unpredictable, um, busy, constantly travelling. Um, it's very hard to sort of develop hobbies or anything mm. outside of work when you can't commit to anything. Yeah, it's like, uh, can you be part of this football team? Yes, okay, if I'm not fighting ISIS in Iraq. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do it this weekend. Yeah, uh, I can't say that I'm going to do it next weekend or yeah. even in four weeks' time. Yeah, And, you know, I loved I loved um, uh, combat sports myself and I've never been able to train consistently to end up getting it like a fight in. And that's kind of like a regret, right? Like, And that's something that kind of haunts you. Yeah. Couldn't even have, like, pot plants. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> so when you did actually make the decision, was it, was it really tough for you to get there? Or once you realised that, you know, that you weren't maximising your life with this job anymore, you realised that, that you had to do something else? Yeah. Um, probably came down to actually some really good advice that I got. So I, I did, a, um, I did a, a special operations bomb disposal course and some of the uh, some of the advice and critiquing or points that were passed on to me after a couple of tasks was that um, I needed to improve my like course of action development. So when you get incredibly stressed or uh, become um, drawn in by like 
uh, smothered by pressure. It's very easy to just um, continue to push forward instead of taking a step back, taking in more information and trying to problem solve. Yeah. And I took that literally with my life. Hmm. If my end goal was to like be happy and, and sort of have like maybe a family in the future, what I was doing with, with the military career was what I was doing during these tasks. I was just pushing forward, kind of like expecting the outcome to eventually come through persistence. Yeah. So I took that advice and I changed directions. I took a step back, um, left the military. Well, first I decided that what I wanted to do um, and then kind of developed a plan for that and then um, took long service leave and, and, yeah, and left. Tell us about your decision-making and, and how you realised what you wanted to do. Um, through just my own like personal development and using Google and, and YouTube and just watching you know, educational videos or even opinions by just random people that I found interesting, um, I kind of learnt that my personality and, and who I am like through my virtues and, and my characteristics um, are quite um, caring, for, caring for people and I've all, I'm quite interested in, in helping people and, and I found that kind of using my background within special operations and, and operating under pressure um, would be quite helpful within psychology mm. and also like more, more specifically sports psychology. And so that's what you're doing now. You're studying psychology with a, with a, a view to getting a, a business degree also. Correct, yeah. Um, even during the transition period with Defence, which was actually like one of the best things I've done, um, the amount of support that like Defence or Army gives out for members like transitioning out of the Army, I found like incredible. Uh, there was um, packages there available that help you build your CV, help you build like uh, determine um, like what jobs are suitable for your for your um, personality, but also like interviewing techniques. Mm. And through that discovery, uh, confirmed that psychology was a good idea. And then also starting to talk and and with people about psychology that were in defence. At the moment, I know like four people that I used to work with that are going to study psychology. Mm. So it's a common field um, for us and, and um, yeah, leaning on people like information is obviously key and, and being able to have a support network that's so readily available to, to share information that they've learned, yeah, it's been a massive like help towards me getting out. Now transitioning from the military is, is tough regardless, regardless of who you are. Um, but coming from a special forces background, because the identity is so built around your job, um, you know, and there is a sort of an unusual way of, of manifesting your personality when you're in that type of job. It's really hard to go into a civilian lifestyle. You know, one of the reasons is because everything becomes a little bit boring, but how did you, how did you manage that transition? And is this something that you sort of, um, you methodically did? You realised that this was going to be difficult and you built up strategies around that? I've, throughout, throughout the last like 10, 15 years, quite a few friends have, um, you know, left the military and I've seen a few friends like do really well and move forward with their lives yeah. and a few friends that have kind of held on to being a military soldier as a, as a person instead of really focusing on just being a good person. 
and the the person, the individuals that seem to focus on striving forward and you can still be proud of like your service, but moving forward away from um, defence and away from army and developing new skills that can um, be useful in the civilian sector. So you can't appear to be like the happiest. You need a different identity is essentially what you're saying. You know, like wearing camo, the patches, all that sort of stuff is is maybe sometimes counterintuitive to this transition that you have to make. You have to identify yourself either as a dad or, you know, in another role or something like that. That's that's healthy. Yeah, like just because um, guys aren't wearing the uniform anymore um, doesn't mean that they can't like – they're not being proud of, of who they were. Yeah. Um, I've never really identified myself throughout my army career as a soldier first. I'd like to to think that I'm a good person first and that that's how I you know, want to continue my life. Um, unfortunately, through like instinctual obedience, guys are getting drummed into themselves, that uh, getting drummed in that you know, th- this is their personality now. They're being issued like a personality and... Unfortunately, they can't pull away from that. Um, I don't know how to help them, help help them, but hopefully through that psych degree, I can kind of give some sort of advice in the future. The last thing I did want to ask you about was was Anzac Day, and um, you know, we talked about this previously about you being able to transition not only your career but also your identity to a certain extent, and that is not saying that you're not proud of your service and you're not a soldier. It's just that you you know you you have priorities other priorities now that you've, now that you've transitioned out of defence. But what does Anzac Day mean to you? Um, I believe it's a, it's a day um, to remember guys from World War I and World War II. Um, oh, so you don't think it's, a, it's, it's marking the modern wars? I do, but I think it's over like – I feel like it's marketed. Like um, I would like to see people – like less, um, or like less there to remember like themselves or what they've achieved um, throughout like Afghanistan or Iraq, but be a bit more selfless and remember the guys like hundreds of guys, mm-hmm. thousands of guys dying um, in a lot more terrible conditions than than what we went through. Um, sure, there'll be a day where you know our service will will be. Um, will be highly regarded but selflessly I think I w- I want to I want to remember those guys like in uh, yeah we were one and we were two beautiful mate thanks so much for your time really appreciate it no worries thanks mate that was Sweeps really interesting guy really interesting story um, if you want to know more about about the Battle of Mosul well obviously if you want to know more about the Battle of Mosul then you should buy buy, buy my book which is uh, Mosul by Ben McKelvey Australia's Secret War Inside the ISIS Caliphate um, but if you want to hear more about this po- about this uh, conflict that was Sweebs interesting guy really interesting story um, if you want to know more about the Battle of Mosul well obviously you should pick up my book Mosul Australia's Secret War Inside the ISIS Caliphate by Ben McKelvey um, but if you want to hear more about the battle I would recommend the new podcast The Line um, you can search it on iTunes it's an Apple original I'm in no way associated uh, Acast is in no way associated as far as I know but I've been listening to it and I've been finding it fascinating 
Anyway, before I shuffle off for a little while, I just wanted to say thank you also for listening to the show. I really appreciate your interest. I really appreciate your time and your downloads. Um, and we will meet again. But uh, until then, follow your bliss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.